Okay, so the last couple of days I've been listening to uh, BBC Radio, uh, World Service uh, in the car. I, I don't really listen to the radio except when I wake up um, and I quite like to have some music. So in the car I like to listen to BBC Re uh, World Service and I've been listening to um, how the struggles of cities uh, trying to bid for Amazon to come and uh, put their new base in the city. And there have obviously been complaints that Amazon have been bullying uh, these cities uh, to get uh, all sorts of benefits. Now, I wonder what you would feel like, whether you would want the job, uh, whether, what you would feel like if you were one of the CEOs or managers of one of these big uh, international uh, companies, maybe Amazon or Starbucks or McDonald's. How you would react to the... Uh, the complaints coming in. Starbucks and McDonald's have had uh, minor scandals here and there for the last, I don't know, however long they've been in existence. Obviously, people love to hate these these big international companies, don't they? But uh, I mean, Amazon's doing what it it should be doing. It's it's looking out for its own. It's it's trying to get the best benefits it can, trying to make as much money as it can. So obviously, they want to to, to get benefits out of going to a, a new city. But, as I said, we, we love to hate them. So how would you react if you were the manager or the CEO of these companies? Would you be able to handle it? I know that I definitely wouldn't. I, the last thing I want to be is you know, a headmaster of a school because you have to deal with so many PR problems and you would have to deal with, with, with parents. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, those guys who are parents. You'd have to deal with parents all the time. I do have to deal with parents you know, often, uh, but thankfully there is always somebody above me who I can say, you know, here, pass it on. I, I have had the odd parents who say, say, I know the governors. It's like, uh-oh, you know. So, so they take it to a, to a higher level. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, wisely or not, that level of leadership has never appealed to me. Um, I see a lot of opportunities here for expats. In my school, teachers uh, have become housemasters and housemistresses, which is basically on the level of almost senior management um, or as part of the senior management structure within a boarding school. And that's, I mean, and they're becoming those positions in their 30s, in their early 30s. And that's almost unheard of in the UK because um, there are people lining up for those positions. And they're really very senior positions. I wonder how you would manage if you became a manager or a CEO of one of these big multinational companies at the, uh, the young age of 30. Do you think you can handle it? Would you want someone at the age of 30 to become manager if you were part of that company? Or would you be wondering, does he really or does she really have the experience to, to handle this comp uh, company? Well, that's what's happening in today's passage for Joseph. The greatest country in the world at this time is Egypt. And he is put in charge of the administration for famine relief over the next 14 years at the tender age of 30. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 40 and 41, but mostly dwelling on Genesis chapter 40. Um, 
Last week, Derek took a look at Genesis 39, uh, where he asked the question about how our faith compares to Joseph. Joseph stayed steadfast in his love for God, despite all that happened to him. And also how Joseph was looking at a foreshadowing of Jesus. Where Jesus brings, well, as we'll see today, salvation to his people. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, closer today. So, um, I'm not going to be reading chapter 40. Hopefully it's a chapter that's uh, fairly familiar to us. At the end of 39, Joseph has been put in uh, prison because he uh, was accused of sleeping with Potiphar's wife, falsely accused. Um, And then in uh, in chapter 40, he is in charge of the prisons and under his care uh, comes the the chief cupbearer and the baker to to Pharaoh. Two very major figures. And they both have dreams, and uh, Joseph uh, interprets those dreams, and while one is raised up and returned to Pharaoh's side, the other is executed. So we'll see this at the start of, uh, of chapter 41. So if you turn to chapter 41 and Genesis 41, uh, we use the ESV version. Uh, if you need some Bibles, I think there's still some Bibles around. Otherwise, uh, we use the ESV version uh, on your digital devices. So, bear with me, it's a a long passage. So, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank uh, bank of the Nile. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of God. We dreamed the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretations. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you uh, 
said of you that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph said to Pharaoh, it is not me, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven cows, plump seven, uh, seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as uh, at the beginning. Then I awoke. I saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the uh, east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And as I told, the uh, told it to the magicians, but there, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Pharaoh said to, as Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. Sorry, I've, uh, sorry, the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven e empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will, uh, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubting of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed. So the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly, shortly bring it about. Now therefore, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, uh, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers in the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for the food of the cities and let them keep it. That food should, uh, shall be a reserve of the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through, uh, through the famine. The, Pharaoh was, uh, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And the Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around, about his neck and made him ride in his, in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! 
Thus he, was, he set him over all the land of Egypt. <clears throat> Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Sephaneth Paneah. And he gave in marriage Asenath, uh, the daughter of Potipharah, priestess of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So, so Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through, through all the land. During seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt. Put the food in the cities, put the, uh, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. For uh, before the year of famine came, his uh, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priestess of On, born them, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of, his, of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to, uh, began to come, as Joseph has said. There was famine in all the land, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, opened all the, uh, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. So the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the land of Egypt, uh, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. <coughs> Let me pray as we go on. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us these uh, histories. Let's not think of them as stories, uh, but uh, learn what you have to teach us about your character, about how we can apply it in our lives. Lord, we pray that you are with us as you have promised, and your spirit is guiding us to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to talk about one thing that this passage definitely doesn't teach us, and then three things, uh, three points as all evangelical sermons should have. Three points uh, that, uh, uh, that, it, uh, that I think it does. So do have the passage in front, uh, open in front of us. We're going to be dotting around from the end of, Ch well, just in Joseph's story. So, uh, yeah, do have that in front of us so that you can check that what I say is, is true and you agree. And if you disagree, you can come and uh, talk to me. Don't attack me, please. Uh, afterwards, okay. So, my first thing is this, we should not expect that as Christians, we will be able to interpret dreams. Now, it's clear here that God, only God has the power to interpret dreams. All of the magicians, and they were very powerful in, in Egypt, you know, this was the greatest uh, nation in the world at this time, 
<coughs> but they would have been very powerful. But none of them are able to interpret dreams. But it's clear that God does have the uh, power to interpret dreams. That's not one of my points, but it, it's kind of a minor point. But we as Christians, uh, we can't read from this that we, uh, we should be able to interpret dreams. Quick pop quiz, because I'm a teacher and that's what I like to do. I mean, sermons are very different from my classroom. In my classroom, I constantly like to interact with my students. Who can tell me who interprets dreams in the Bible? Well, there's one obvious one, and there's kind of a couple of minor ones who might be considered to interpret dreams. I'm going to stop picking on people if we don't have volunteers. Who interprets dreams in the Bible? I, I hear someone whispering over there. Daniel. Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, and, right, and who else? Is there any other interpretation of dreams? So that's the only one really big one. There's a couple of minor ones. I might have to ask Craig to see, see, see whether he knows. No, I wouldn't. Sorry? I said ask Bethany. No? Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Uh, a quick reminder. A sheet coming down from heaven with all sorts of animals on it. Peter. <laughs> that's all right. It's early morning. I have those kind of moments. Peter has a sheet come down down from heaven with all sorts of animals on it. And this is uh, uh, G, uh, sorry, God saying, go to the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles then come to Peter just after he has that dream. And he kind of comes to the realization of what that dream is. So he doesn't really get, get an interpretation of, uh, of his dream. Um, also, we see... Uh, um, Joshua going to the camp of the Midianites, he doesn't interpret the dream. Actually, one of the other Midianites uh, kind of interprets the dream himself, uh, saying, well, the bread rolls into the camp and destroys the camp. And so he says, oh, we're going to be, uh, the Midianites are going to be put into the hands of, of God. So, um, that's very, very rare. In the whole of the Bible, the only one who really has the power to interpret dreams, well, it's God, but it's given, it's given to Daniel and Joseph. So it's such a rare occurrence. It isn't on the list of spiritual gifts that, that Paul talks about in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy, the Mosaic law says that such people who falsely interpret dreams should be put to death. That's how seriously they take it. And many times in the New Testament, we're told to the... Pointed to the sufficiency of the scriptures. The scriptures are sufficient enough. So let's have a look at what the passage is saying. I mean, this should be a familiar story to us all. Just to recap, at the end of chapter 39, Joseph is thrown in prison for a crime that he does not commit. At this point, I know that for me, I would be seriously doubting God's plan for my life. Twice he has had everything he he put his trust in, everything that he you know, thinks he has is ripped away from him. So firstly, his family is ripped away from him and he is sold into slavery. And secondly, when he works to earn the trust of his, for, uh, his master, Potiphar, who would have been a, you know, one of the most powerful people in the nation, 
puts him solely in charge of his house. Everything is under <coughs> Joseph's control, under this massive house. Um, and then that, and so he must have reached a level of comfort. Head servant, head slave in the household of one of the most powerful men in the nation. That's got to be fairly comfortable. And then, without any reason at all, a crime he didn't commit that was ripped away from him. I mean, I, I've learned over my life that we need very little to feel sorry for ourselves. And we have an infinite capacity for self-pity. I see that among my students, I see that in my, myself. Some of the students from the nicest families, the wealthiest, most comfortable, stable families, you know, constantly feeling, feeling sorry for themselves. And some of the most difficult situations, you get students who are positive and cheerful and enthusiastic. I, can, I remember at times in my life where I, God had given me so much, and yet I was feeling sorry for myself, and I was negative, and I was cynical. And I know that you know, we just have an infinite capacity for self-pity. I think that Joseph at this point has very good reason not just to feel sorry for himself, but to be angry at God. But despite all of that, you see that he is working to honour God. You see that despite having that comfort and power ripped away from him, he still works to honour God. He becomes, he it works so hard that he is put in charge of the prison. Let's take a look at a closer look at just chapter 39 and we will see that uh, in verse 21, it's not Joseph who's doing this though, it's God. There's this repeated phrase, God was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love. It's a strange way of showing his steadfast love. You take him from the highest position and throw him into prison. But God was there. We see it again in verse 23. The Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it uh, succeed. Back in verse 2 in, in chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And this is my first point. We succeed or fail purely because of the will of God. We succeed or fail purely because of the will of God. Don't get me wrong. God allows, does allow evil men to prosper. We've seen that in this world. God does allow evil men to prosper for this short life. We see in these passages, God also allows good men to suffer. Even his chosen one, Joseph, on whom everything rests for the future of Israel, he allows him to suffer. We see that in a foreshadowing of Jesus. <coughs> his chosen one suffers. And it is his plan for his greater glory. And we see by the end of chapter 41, this suffering leads to God's greater glory. So my first point, we succeed or fail purely because of the will of God. And it could be the will of God that it is your time to suffer, regardless of whether you've done anything wrong or not. Because Jesus certainly didn't. And yet he faced the ultimate suffering, crucifixion and death on the cross. 
My second point is this. God works out his plan as we continue to trust in him. You see, it wouldn't have been easy for uh, Joseph to take charge of the prison and the, the prisoners. He was in his 20s when he entered the prison. So as a young man and as a foreigner, he would never have met people like this in his whole life. I mean, he met some pretty rough people. I'm sure he, the slavers were not nice, but that was a fairly short time. And then even as, I mean, I'm sure there were some, some servants in Potiphar's house who were either lazy or uncooperative, and he would have had to deal with them. But these were prisoners. These were the toughest of the tough kind of men. So, uh, I mean, when I started out as a teacher, I was young-looking, very young-looking, 22-year-old. People said that I, uh, yeah, I, people say I look young now, but back then I was often mistaken for a student. Um, actually, I've been mistaken for a GCSE student as well. Uh, the first few years of my career were solely learning to control a classroom because I walked in, they saw a young man, and they do take advantage if they think that you are young and you don't know what you're doing. So I was really having to learn my craft, and they really you know, tried to test, test me. After four years of teaching, however, I left to study a master's, and after that, while I was looking for a job, I was doing some supply teaching in some of the roughest schools in London. I had never come across children like this. Yeah. In one of my first lessons, one of the, some of the girls got up. Uh, this was a rough school in in Hackney. Some of the girls got up on the the table, started dancing. I had to get get them down. So, yeah, it just you know, uh, and every single lesson was a battle. But that was a lesson. I learnt my craft then, and thankfully, having had four years of teaching before that, I was able to control these classes. And I was very sad to leave those classes because I was developing a relationship with those students and I was learning to get them to be productive. Now just imagine how much worse, I mean those were pretty rough students and they were, you know, uh, they really, really didn't like maths and they, they really, really didn't want to be in school and they didn't see the point of school. Just imagine how much worse these prisoners are. Massive grown men who are kind of have committed all sorts of crimes. And Joseph, this young foreigner, comes in and is put in charge of them. How much, how hard must he have had to work for that? How trustworthy, how capable is he if he is put in charge of these prisoners? You see, um, by chapter 41, Joseph is put in charge of the administration of the whole of Egypt. Definitely the greatest nation in the world at this time. We see in chapter 39 that as yeah, Joseph rises through the ranks and was in charge of the household of the captain of the guard, it would have been quite a household. And in chapter 40, we see that Joseph is put in charge of all the prisoners. Those are no mean feats. You see, God is training Joseph. To put him in charge, directly in charge of the greatest country in the world, well, that would be foolish, wouldn't it? He comes in charge of the greatest nation in the world, having had good training. 
God was preparing him through all those times. Even at 30, people would have been saying, why is this young man in charge of all of us? He's not even an Egyptian. And people would have railed against him. And you can imagine it being abundant. You can just imagine the farmers saying, why do we have to give you grain? And them resisting and them trying to hide grain away. And actually some even being molten. Even in year seven, when it's still being abundant, like it hasn't come. there's no way that next year it's going to be a famine and Joseph is in charge of these people but he's had the training and God is teaching him to trust in him you see Joseph had has had everything ripped away from him twice firstly his family family then his position I told you in my previous, uh, so, so I've told you before that in my previous school I came under some, um, some trials. The senior management had a problem with, you know, um, actually it was, it was a, about my faith, but I won't go into too much, I'm sure I'll tell you about it some other time, but at the time I would have said, just before it, I would have said there's no way that anyone can challenge my position here because my standing among the students, my, my track record is good. I've got good results. My students love me. Arrogantly, I said that. Yeah, I would have said, yeah, I, I can even remember me thinking this. The parents love me. I've got a great relationship with the parents. My colleagues, I've got good standing with my colleagues. They respect me. They trust me. I get on really well with my head of year and my head of department. And then that I had ripped all away because I came under disciplinary. And none of that counted for anything. And I came under scrutiny. None of that counted for anything. And what God was teaching me at the time, and I can, I can see this looking back, was that I shouldn't have been putting any of my trust in those supports. But in God alone. I threw myself at God's mercy. And we can see it even more so here, Joseph cannot throw himself, you know, we see that it's the support of his family, his wealthy family, who ha he has many brothers, he has a loving father yeah, and parents, but that is ripped away from him. And then as he builds himself up, we see he cannot trust in his position and the trust of Potiphar, because that is ripped away from him for no reason. He is just doing what he thinks is best. He's doing the best for Potiphar, and yet that is ripped away from him. So, what is left after that suffering, what is left after our suffering, is solely a support, the, the trust in God. So God is teaching us to trust in him. And God is also teaching him patience. You see, Joseph here... Uh, or sorry, in, in chapter 40, is given just a glimmer of hope. Put under his charge is the, the cupbearer and the baker from, the, from Pharaoh. And Joseph is given the power to interpret their dreams. One is executed, the baker is executed, the cupbearer is returned to Pharaoh. And if you look at uh, chapter 40, verse 14, if you want to turn to that with me, Daniel asks just one thing of the cupbearer. He says, Only remember me when it is well with you, 
and please do not uh, do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here I have done nothing that they should put me, uh, put me into the pit. You can hear the anguish, can't you, in him? They've put me in the pit. I've done nothing wrong. Despite his standing of someone in charge of all the prisoners, this is not a pleasant situation. This is not a job that anyone would choose. He's still in prison. He's still in enslavement. This is not his home. This is not his family. And so God is teaching him patience because what happens? The cupbearer forgets about him for two whole years. How difficult must that be? And Joseph stayed steadfast to God. When Pharaoh calls him forth to interpret his dream and says, can you interpret dreams? Joseph doesn't say, yeah, I can interpret dreams. Who does he attribute that to? He says, no, I can't interpret dreams. It's God who will interpret this dream for you. God will give you a favorable answer. So, despite all the trials and woes experienced experience by Joseph, despite all the woes and sorrows and trials you might be experiencing in your life, and you might want to punch somebody who says, God has a plan. If you've ever been there where you are wretched, where you are really feeling sorry for yourself, and someone says, just trust in God, God has a plan. Yeah, I, I know that you just want to punch that person. I'm sorry. I don't encourage violence. But that's a, you know, that's a, it's hard to say that to somebody. But this example from Joseph is a great one. God does have a plan and asks us to trust in him. He teaches us in our suffering to trust in him. God works out his plan as we continue to trust in him. My final point is the same as Derek's from last, last week. And the same, we kind of covered as, uh, Joseph in a series looking at uh, what Stephen says as he preaches through the Old Testament and eventually to Jesus. That God uses his chosen man to bring salvation to his people. His chosen man through suffering to bring salvation to his people. We see that in, in, in Joseph. He goes through suffering and then brings salvation by the end of chapter 41. Salvation to actually the whole of the earth. And we see that in Jesus. He goes through suffering to bring salvation to his people and to the whole, whole of the earth. What were the promises to Abraham? I wonder whether you can remember them. I'm not going to quiz you this time, but I want you to be thinking of them in your head. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, just turn a flick back to Genesis 12. The promises to Abraham. This is before anything else, Abraham has done anything else. It just says that Abraham has faith in, in God. He hasn't done anything else. This is God giving Abraham everything. So Genesis 12, verse 2. 
I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. So at this point in Joseph's history, as in Joseph's story, Israel is just one large, fairly wealthy family. That great nation hasn't happened yet. He is being, they are being blessed by God. Second bit, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. So Abraham's name, well, he's dealt with a couple of rulers, etc. His name isn't really that great yet. I will bless those who bless you and curse you, uh, curse you, uh, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And this is the the key thing for the, our passage, and for the consequences. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Don't we see that in in, in chapter tw- uh, forty-one? Let's look back at chapter uh, chapter forty-one, right at the end. Verse 56, so chapter 41, verse 56. So the famine had spread over all the land. Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, and the famine was severe over all the earth. So God doesn't just bless Moses, he, uh, sorry, Joseph. He doesn't just bless Egypt. He doesn't just bless them he blesses the entire earth and among that he blesses the family of Joseph of Jacob of Abraham the whole earth is blessed through Joseph's work and as ultimately as we look forward to Jesus God's chosen one came through betrayal like Joseph So Joseph's chosen one, Jesus, came through betrayal like Joseph. He came through suffering like Joseph. And he was lifted up from the depths, from the pit, from death, to bless the whole earth through the salvation that he alone offers. In the men's Bible study, we are learning from John that we have been given the right to become children of God. You see, it's nothing to do with us. We are the chosen people. You are the chosen people. If you're a Christian here today and you've accepted Jesus, your Lord and Savior, you have been chosen. And this is what God calls you to do. God has placed you exactly where he wants you, in school, in work, unemployed, or in prison, even. God God favors and is sending you to be a blessing to all people. God's steadfast love is with you. He favors you and is sending you to be a blessing to all people. So to recap my three points, because I've just about finished now. We succeed or fail because of the will of God. The Christian work in my school that I'm trying to do is really hard ground. And if it was my work, I would get utterly depressed because sometimes, often, no students turn up at all. The students are hard and cynical and don't want to hear about Christianity. But I have peace because I'm doing God's work. And it's him who is uh, enabling me to succeed or fail 
And I don't know where the seeds are falling in those conversations that I'm having with students. I remember a couple, uh, many years ago, about 10 years ago now, one of my students, we just had two students who would faithfully come along to the Christian Forum in my previous school. That similarly was hard ground. And last year, one of the students who stayed in touch with me on Facebook has written, uh, Sam, I thank you because the book that you gave me at the end, I'm now preparing a sermon. This is the, the actually the... Um, John, uh, the, the Carson's book on John. I thought he was this. This guy is going to become a preacher. I gave him Carson's big, thick book on John, John's Gospel, which I'm using for our Bible study actually. And he said, "I have to thank you because I'm just about preparing a, a kind of sermon on John." And that is amazing to hear. Many, many years after those seeds were sown. I don't know where these seeds will, will, will lie, and I'm sure that there will be many that I won't see, but I trust, I trust God. God works out his plan as we continue to trust in him. Our suffering makes us more Christ-like. Life is hard. God is working <coughs> to equip us to serve him better. Those times of suffering, we need to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. We need to trust God. And finally, God is working in his chosen ones. That is Joseph. That is Jesus. That was Stephen as he, just before he got stoned. That is us. To bring salvation to his people. People will be saved because God will use you to share the glory, his glory to others. So don't be afraid to talk about your Christianity and to let everyone know about that everyone who you meet know about that i know it's difficult i know it's it's hard pray for those opportunities god's chosen ones god will be working in his chosen ones to bring salvation to his people to all the earth people groups of all the earth that is the great mission making disciples of all people groups through all the earth let me pray. Father, we pray that we can trust you through difficult times and through good times, because it's so easy to forget you in the good times, Lord. But in the difficult times, help us to throw ourselves at your mercy. Help us not to rely on earthly supports, on uh, things of this world. Even family, even good Christian friends, Lord, help us to trust you alone. And help us to be the light of the world. To spread your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Sam. Um,